0: So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money Episode 1343, becoming the sole breadwinner in the pandemic with Lee Bon founder of Present Voices.
1: As for so many people, so scary at the beginning, right? We had no idea what was happening. We were in New York City, in Brooklyn. We had been in the same apartment for over 15 years. And in the lead up to the pandemic, we actually lost that apartment. We had rats eat through the walls. And so we were already in real disarray. And in this moment, I have my own business. My partner, he was going to a hospital all day. And so it was a very stressful moment where he was in one of the hardest hit hospitals and being pushed to the front lines as an administrator. And so we made a very challenging decision very early on in the pandemic.
0: Welcome to So Money everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Today we're going to hear of the behind the scenes of One Household where the couple decided to go from two income streams to one. And who was going to be the stay-at-home parent? Dad. Lee Basudo is our guest today. She is an entrepreneur and founder of Present Voices, where she helps people access and articulate their best ideas in their most important moments through communication coaching, consulting, and community. In our conversation, Lee and I talk about her business helping people harness, in many cases, their anxiety to communicate more effectively and to articulate their value. And also, she speaks candidly about the decisions that she and her partner made in the pandemic to reorient the economics within their marriage, to have her husband step away from his career and become the primary caregiver to their daughter. How was that decision made? How did it work out? And how is it continuing to work out? Fun fact about Lee, she was raised in the theater. Her father was a mime. And fast forward to today, she is a communications Consultant. So that's got to be an interesting story. And she takes us to her childhood and some of the money memories that she has growing up in an artist community. So much to discuss with our fabulous guest. Here's Lee Bonvasudo. Lee Bonvasudo, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure to officially connect. I'm so happy to be here with you, Farnoosh. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled because, in you know, once in a while, you have a guest on this show where you're privileged in that you can talk about a number of relevant topics. You are an entrepreneur in your own right, and we want to talk about all of the talents that you're bringing into the world, helping your clients become more effective communicators and. Um, explainers of their value which is something we definitely want to dive into on the show and how it can help us in our careers you know talking about our our value our worth is something that is an ongoing challenge in addition to that though lee you know you mentioned as we were planning for this episode how you have personally gone through some transitions during the pandemic which are economic and family oriented where, like many families, I think you had to sort of reorient the dynamic. You went from dual income to a single income stream because you have constraints at home. And so, I want to explore that with you because I know that's something that you have done. And I want to know how you made the decision and how it's working out. You are the sole breadwinner now in your marriage. And then, you were also raised by artists, which uh, you include in your bio. So, I know this is something significant and impactful in your life. And wondering if we could go there too and talk about how that has helped or hindered your, you know, your own financial independence and narrative. So first just welcome and thank you for coming on and exploring all this with us. Yes. Very happy to talk about this all. Thank you. So where should we start? I wonder if maybe it would make sense to maybe talk a little bit about the behind the scenes and how life has been for you. I often, you know, have been asking guests if I haven't seen or talked to you in a couple of years, like What's going on? How has it? How has life been? And and you have had a, quite a transition becoming the sole breadwinner. So tell, maybe take us back to those days, early days in the pandemic, and what you and your partner were were grappling with.
1: Absolutely. And as we're coming up on this two-year milestone, we're all really digesting the past two years, right, and feeling how momentous this has been. And it was as for so many people, so scary at the beginning, right? We had no idea what was happening. We were in New York City, in Brooklyn. We had been in the same apartment for over 15 years. And in the lead up to the pandemic, we actually lost that apartment. We had rats eat through the walls. We had bed bugs. We were given a temporary apartment. And so we were already in real disarray. And in this moment, I have my own business where I happen to help people communicate and I specialize in virtual communication. Uh At the same time, my husband, my partner, he was going to a hospital all day. And so it was a very stressful moment where he was in one of the hardest hit hospitals and being pushed to the front lines as an administrator. And so we made a very challenging decision very early on in the pandemic to really choose my career. We were both making the same amount at that time. And looking at my career and how I help people with virtual communication, we took a bet and it paid off in that my my business has really grown a lot in the last two years. And we also had to leave that apartment. The problems continued. We actually lost power mid-May. And that was just a few months after things started, right after Tim left his job. We put all of our belongings into storage and we walked away with our toddler. Oh. And our toddler who, you know, we were so afraid at that moment to even go out on the streets of Brooklyn because we yes. didn't know. Our supers were both in the hospital with COVID. And so we couldn't even have them in to fix the massive problems. And it was this incredibly scary and confusing time as it was for so many people. Hmm.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, nothing like that to test you. And I, I love what I heard, what you said that you took a bet on your career I want to highlight that because I find that often in the pandemic, especially, well, it was not that, that was not the case where it was like, well, you know, you're the woman and you're better at caregiving. So we're just going to have you be the one who takes a backseat professionally. You know, the, the negotiation doesn't always go the way that I think I'm hearing you and your husband um, taking it. Did you think about that? Did you think about how
1: maybe you were unique in that a little bit? Absolutely. And of course, we saw so many women and femmes lose their careers during this pandemic period. We've seen horrifying statistics about this. I know that we are the exception. And I know that I'm an exception in having such a supportive partner who has taken on all of the caretaking duties. He has spent every minute with our kid over the past two years until she started school just a few months ago. It is significant. And I have to mention that at the time of making this decision, nearly everyone in our life told us not to do this, that it would be too much of a risk that you can't depend on a business owner, a small business to get you through the next few years, which could be incredibly volatile. I'm very grateful that we made the choice that we did. We also have never been constrained by gender norms in our relationship, and that has only been further grown over the past two years. But it has been an amazing, real privilege to have this support and to be able to continue to grow my business and to do the work that I love so much.
0: Wow. I mean... How are you thinking about the next few years? Do you think your husband will has he has he really embraced this to the point where he's like this is what I want to do? Even as COVID dissipates, or I don't even know how we can characterize well, what is it? Well, how do we call it? like it's not like it's not over, but right? It's just we're learning to live with it. I guess how has he been reevaluating his own? ambitions and professional
1: goals. Yes. And Farnoosh, we are one of the many families who has an unvaccinated kid. She is pushing four and a half. She's going to be five soon. We can't wait for that moment. But for us, the pandemic is not over. It has not ended. And for me, I have a mother who's also severely immunocompromised. And so we are every day seeing the importance of keeping her safe. And so at each moment when my partner husband has thought about reentering the workforce. We've had her home with, you know, an exposure or a cold or something Mm -hmm. else, but he has many passions. And so definitely looking in that direction. And again, we have a tremendous privilege in being able to support ourselves on a one income family at this moment, which a lot of families don't have that choice.
0: Right. But gosh, you must have been scared because it's not not fun to go into something like this. And as you described it, not having the support of family and a lot of pessimism around you. How did you work through that? as I'm sure it was a stressful time. It's stressful in any condition, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to like try to build my business. And then of course, in a pandemic that, but again, you said it was, it was an interesting niche that you were in that
1: allowed for growth. I'm so lucky really that my work speaks to me so profoundly and that it speaks to others too. And every day I hear from people who are struggling to articulate themselves in important moments and how much that makes them doubt themselves. And so my work is reinforcing and I struggle with this too. It's why I do this work. I've had a lifelong struggle with being able to articulate myself in important moments. And so that's really what has kept me going is speaking to people every day and seeing the impact seeing them feel better and feeling relief for the first time for many people it keeps me going and it really hooks me into the importance of this work and brought more broadly changing the way that we communicate at work so that we're really being led by and listening to more types of voices mm.
0: Well, this transitions us well to talking a little bit more about Present Voices. This is your company. So fascinating, you combine neuropsychology and theater direction. These are your two loves. How is neuropsychology? I can see where the theater comes into play, but how how is the neuropsychology an element in all of this?
1: Well, just by happenstance of being an artist, and I spent my 20s directing theater, and I love directing theater. I was really raised in the theater. I've always loved helping people tell stories on all kinds of stages in the background rooms of bars in the deep parts of Brooklyn, but it doesn't pay the bills. And unfortunately, a lot of artists are not supported in our society. And so I spent my entire 20s for 13 years as the personal assistant and main employee of a neuropsychologist. I ran his practice. I helped him write his neuropsychological reports, and I did extensive research for him on trauma and anxiety, executive function and attention. Oh, while the same time for me, I was very confident doing theater and really in the role itself. But the moment I had to talk about myself, the moment I had to be interviewed or really promote, it was like my personality shut down and all of my old feelings about anxiety and speaking up would resurface in those moments. And so the neuropsychological aspect is really important because a lot of times anxiety can be pathologized for us. Imposter syndrome can be pathologized, as Rashika Talujin talked about so well on your podcast a few weeks ago. And so we really have to take the reins back. We have to help ourselves feel more powerful and more in control. And understanding the neuropsychology behind it can be really enlightening for people. Mm. A lot of the people that I support feel like there's something wrong with them, that they're must be something that if they could just work harder than their articulation would work. If they can just think more deeply, then they'll be able to articulate their ideas. And I often find it's the opposite, that we're working too hard at communication. And so that really is the foundation of this work, a lot of my own understanding of neuropsychology. And frankly, when I first started to do this work on myself 10 years ago, and I was very alone in that, I used neuropsychological understanding and exposed therapy? And how could I Mm -hmm. really immerse myself in the sensations I was feeling, the sensations I feel right now appearing on your podcast? How -hmm. can I make myself less afraid of them? Are you afraid right now? (laughs) I I have to say, most people really struggle with this. And I find that almost everyone does. And also, it's the same physiological sensations that me, I experience as anxiety, other people are going to experience as adrenaline. And so absolutely, we feel these sensations. The key is to not feel afraid of them, to recognize them for what they are, to understand why they happen, which is an incredibly natural human sensation, and then to put very tangible, practical, personalized tools into place that help you feel in control. Mm -hmm. And it's really the combination of neuropsychology with the storytelling and the larger parts of acting training and understanding the way that story works that have come together in this work for me and for the people I support. I love that. Can you tell me a little bit about these tools? I like to drive it home for the
0: listeners. So I think what you said about the pathology, understanding maybe these stories that we are we have uh, inherited from the external world and we have attached them to our own sense of self-worth, we need to dismantle that and that is foundational. So then perhaps the next step is to understand, you know, what are these tools that we can latch on to? And I'm sure they're different for everybody, but what what seems to work when you're in the context of work and a professional setting?
1: Absolutely. And I really want to shout out to Christina Blacken, who talks about narrative intelligence and Christina's work gets deep into understanding stories and the way that they attach themselves to our bones. And my work comes in more on how can we make this tangibly more comfortable and a A lot of times at work, people are being given feedback that is intangible, that is not practical of people wanting them to have more confidence or more executive presence. These terms that feel very outside of ourselves. And I believe firmly that confidence only comes when we feel comfortable, when we can find comfort within ourselves so that we can actually feel safe to articulate our ideas. And that comfort is not available to everyone in every setting. And for myself as a white person, it is definitely more available to me than to others. Mm -hmm. And so I really believe in transforming the anxiety into attention I believe transforming the distractions we all feel every day into presence is the way that we do this. We cannot think our way out of the anxiety. For me, I have anxiety that ranges from physiological sensations all the way to racing thoughts and emotional shutdown that a lot of my my client's experience. And if I try to think my way out of that, I'm going to end up back in that anxiety loop. And so instead, we begin with very physical, tangible, quite technical tools. And these are not habitual. A lot of times people say, well, when does it become habitual? And really, it is our natural human tendencies that are habitual. It's the way that we're socialized as communicators that can become habitual. And I find that the unconscious behaviors can lead to unconscious thinking and unconscious communication. Communication. And so by taking our consciousness back, by making tangible physical choices in the moment, we're actually in engendering more conscious communication through conscious thought. And one of the big examples I'd love to give is leaning back. This is one of my favorite simple tools. And this is not just new to the pandemic. I used mm-hmm. to joke that I would walk through hallways. Wait, wait, things wait. Things. You're telling me I shouldn't lean in? <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I, I really believe that Cheryl said that's a huge disservice by telling us to lean in. And by us, I'm talking to women and non-binary femmes. I'm also including men in that too. But when we lean in, we are actually constricting our physical comfort. We are u- moving our presence to other people. We are more often to absorb our over-index facial expressions from others. And we are much less likely to feel centered and to be able to listen to our own perspective. And so just by leaning back, we are going to build more hormonal confidence. But the biggest benefit is also that we are changing our habitual behavior and forcing ourselves into the present moment. And from there, we can make different choices. And so just as an example, that is how we can start to change the very habits that are ingrained to give us a bit more presence, a bit more power, and a bit more agency in the midst of anxiety, which works so hard to take away our ability to make choices. Oh my gosh.
0: I'm I'm writing all of this down because what you have essentially done for me is make concrete the thing that I've always suspected in my head. I didn't have a word for it. You know, when I get confident in times of anxious, in in moments of anxiety, which I feel many times in my career as somebody who has to constantly be performing, meeting really powerful people in the presence of, you know, greatness all the time. You, you know, I'm I'm anxious interviewing people because you are bringing such a wealth of knowledge. I am here to learn. And, and I can feel like sometimes I stumble or I'm not asking the right questions, but you have said something. You said zoom out and or lean out, but it it is true and I have caught myself doing that. Didn't know what that I was doing it, but I do I do that. I I tend to it's almost like it relaxes me and it gives me perspective. When you feel like there's so much chaos in front of you which can translate into anxiety in your bone and your brain, there's something about like as they say like take a step back. Is that what we mean when we say take a step back? Because one, it calms you, but also provides you with the entirety of the context of what is going on. And sometimes I'm found to, I find that that makes me laugh. Like when I look at it, I'm like, is this really it? You know, I've been so hyper-focused on something minute, but when you zoom out, you put it in the context of the world and you go, that's silly. What what is even that right? I mean that's that's been my um. I can now I can now piece together that journey for myself just in what you said in these like few minutes. You're brilliant.
1: I'm not brilliant, Farnish. This is (laughs) none none of this is new. First of all, this is all rooted in the science of embodied cognition, which has been studied extensively by social scientists like Amy Cuddy and John Neffinger and Matthew Kohut, and it is definitely true that we experience this. Very internalized focus when we approach public speaking. And I want to thank you for even admitting that anxiety because a lot of people don't. And that is one of the biggest barriers to more equity and inclusion at work. And we can get into that a bit later. But it's really important to decentralize ourselves when we are public speaking. And by public speaking, I do not just mean public speaking. I mean every moment of communication that is important to us in our everyday professional lives. But we all have a natural tendency to center ourselves and to become hyper-focused. And that's a trauma response. It's hyper-vigilance. And so we become very much the center of our own focus. And that can be detrimental to our anxiety. And it can really be centering our attention in the wrong place. And so just by zooming out, we can position ourselves where We need to be. And I love to expose the process behind my preparation. You know, I'm a big believer that we need to be working less hard and preparing less and really being more efficient in the way that we use our time. But today, I'll tell you, I prepared really one thing, and that was my perspective. And if Mm -hmm. I were to come here, Farnoosh, and want to make a great impression or want to prove my work, it just doesn't work. It centers myself and it makes me feel very anxious. Mm-hmm. And so the preparation I did today was thinking, who am I speaking to? And I don't know that you have anxiety. So I thought through to a listener who might hear this and think, oh, maybe there's not something wrong with me. Maybe I am human. Maybe my voice feels out of sync because of uncomfortable situations where I don't feel safe. And that I, if I can speak to that person, wow, it helps me de myself and it helps me feel the impact of this work in a greater way. And that is what we want for all of our work, right? Absolutely. I mean, what
0: another thing you said was when you admit anxiety, you unlock the barriers that we have with regards to equity and inclusivity. Can you expand on that? I think that's important to remember that. This is important for us as individuals, but by taking care of ourselves as individuals, we are effectively helping someone who is watching, who needs that support and
1: inspiration too. Yeah, I talk a lot in my work about who is doing this work, who is doing the work to be more present and conscious communicators, who is working hard to be more compassionate. And so it's really, really important that we are all doing this work and that particularly for people who have felt marginalized in their voices at work, that they can work less hard. And so that is a big key component. And I work with all types of people at all levels of seniority in nearly every industry. And it's very interesting that the the higher the level of seniority, the more visual success that someone appears to have, the more stigma, shame, and secrecy they are going to have around admitting that they struggle with communication. And this is doing everyone a massive disservice. And if particularly the people with more privilege and power can make this admission, particularly to the people that they serve and support within their organizations. They're going to give everyone more permission to be vulnerable in this regard. And we cannot learn and grow when we feel unsafe. It does not work. We have to find a way for ourselves to feel comfortable. And leaders and organizations have a tremendous responsibility here in how they can admit their own shortcomings, do the work so that other people can do less of it.
0: Yes. Yes. Because going back to your point about feeling safe, um, that's not uh, necessarily an easy thing to identify sometimes. And it's nothing to do with you. It's your environment. And so any advice for those of us who do feel like our company and our leaders have not done that work to provide that welcome and, and safe space for us? How do we reconcile that?
1: Yeah. For ourselves as individuals, and again, for myself as a white person, I'm communicating from my own very limited perspective there. It is essential that we work on how we can trust ourselves. And for a lot of people, a lot of the people I support, again, they're getting these very buzzy words as feedback with no ways of incorporating that tangibly. And if you tell someone that they need more confidence, that feels like it's outside of them and they inherently are working for some external validation in order to achieve that confidence. And the actual definition of confidence, do you know this, Farnoosh? I just looked it up a few months ago. It (laughs) is to boldly trust. To boldly trust. Oh, wow. Wow. And if that's what confidence means, then that is only inside, inside of ourselves. And so the first thing is that when you find that trust within yourself, and that really is about honoring your own communication style, your own experience and cultural background honoring everything from where you come from and how you communicate. That is the first step. And I find that once people are able to access that, then the confidence comes, the executive presence, whatever that buzzy word means Mm -hmm. comes. And then of course, we can serve as an example for the rest of our organization. But when, when I support organizations at the institutional level, I really will only do so if the people at the top are doing this work as well. Hmm.
0: Good, good, good. To boldly trust. I like that. Well, before we go, Lee would love to learn a little bit more about your upbringing and your background. You know, one of the questions I used to ask guests more frequently, and I want to bring it back now, as I'm saying it out loud is what um, was your biggest money lesson that you learned as a child? And I wonder if being raised by artists
1: um, was influenced
0: this lesson.
1: Of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised by a Broadway musician and a mime. And wow. I joke, yeah. Wow. I joke a lot about this. It's a, you know, funny thing to joke about as the child of a mime being someone who could not speak. I could not talk unless I had a script. And it was tremendous social anxiety I had what I would call inappropriate laughing and crying. I would feel like my reactions were not appropriate. I would feel like I would say the wrong thing constantly. And so being the child of artists, I naturally went into the theater where there was a script and someone told me what to say and how to interact. And it helped me really find more liberation in my voice. But As far as money comes, I was raised in a household that really prioritized passion over profit. And I am a huge believer in that as well. But of course, we should be valuing our own work. And I wish that we lived in a society that valued the work of artists much more. But I really was raised in a household that really was limiting the importance of money. And now in my adult life, and particularly as an entrepreneur and small business owner, I've I've had to really look closely at the way that I overwork, the way that I try to overprove my value by exerting more effort. And I see this a lot as a theme with the people that I support. If I could just work harder, they will know that I am good enough or that I belong. And this has been my own personal process the past two years. And this is a process, I think a lot of parents are going through in the pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. It's not even a matter of conscious choice. It's a matter of, I don't have enough energy to do everything I need to do. And I have to be far more efficient to preserve that energy. And so I've really been critiquing the way that I overwork, the way that I, as some of my clients call it, become an efficiency monster of just wanting to be productive and productive. Mm -hmm. And instead, how can I not equate my success with my level of productivity? How can I work in ease and rest? And this is such wonderful, important work that's, you know, the nap Ministry by Tricia Hersey, who's really led the, the conversation on rest and rest as a form of resistance. And so that has been a really big lesson that I am continuing to learn every single day. Wow. So the daughter of a
0: mime becomes an expert in communication. I mean, that's a that's a memoir, <laughs>
1: if, there, if there ever was one. And I am writing that book right now. It's yeah. working hard on that. And, and it's interesting to put the lens of communication into writing when I've been focusing on the last 20 years on mm-hmm. speaking. But communication is total. It's every way that we interact in this world. And Lee, how's the apartment? Are you still in Brooklyn? I have to tell you, Farnoosh, we left that May 2020. We could not stay. It was not habitable. We left, we put all of our things in storage and we bought a house. And that has been a very... proud thing for me, for us as a family, and for me as the sole earner. And it's been wildly exciting. And to live in more than 600 square feet for the first time and have abundance of space. It's a very new sensation, but we're enjoying it very much.
0: And you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I'm sure at the time you didn't know if you were making the best choice or the craziest choice buying a home and so much uncertainty, you just knew you had to get out. I felt very similarly. We did the same thing. We left in May of 2020 from Brooklyn. I remember going out into Cadman Plaza with my daughter. She was like three and a half with her scooter and it was There was nobody around and it was four o'clock in the afternoon and it was a vast, uh, just uh, that Will Smith movie where he just, you know, he's the last man on earth. And I said, we need to go back inside. This is not a safe place for two, a woman and a girl, right? I mean, let's be honest, the world is scary and it's scarier when you're only (laughs) the two girls there was nobody around and it was, I didn't feel good about it. So we left and we really left uh, shortly after. Imagine trying to find and buy a house now. Uh, (laughs) It would be a lot different. Well, I'm so glad that you and your family are in a much better place and that you acted on your instincts. It worked out for you. Like I said, I knew we were going to cover so much terrain and I wish we had more time, but Lee, thank you so much for gracing our show.
1: Thank you, Farnoosh. I was so happy to talk with you today
0: thanks so much to Lee for joining us. To learn more about her, check out presentvoices.com as well as leebonvasudo.com. I'll have both of those links in our show notes. I'll see you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. Not too late to send in your questions. You can direct message me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money.